Throw up a picture, uh, Rick, of there. I got a good picture for you this morning. You see the caption? And so you can't go to church. You see those people in that freezing weather? That's commitment. That's commitment. A little rain, a little cold. Good grace. Have we become a wussy people, wussy Christian? That's, that's a fan, buddy. That's a follower for sure. And uh, we need a little more of that. Not the snow, just the commitment, right? Good to have everybody here. We're in a series called This Is Us, and it's about relationships. And there are no perfect relationships or marriages uh, or dating deals. They're not perfect, but we can strive for um, a good maturity and we can strive for health. And uh, maybe I'll say a few things today about fear. We're going to talk about how fear plays sometimes a devastating impact on relationships. It can affect business. It can affect uh, Christian brothers and sisters. It can affect people in a marriage relationship. So fear can be a real stumbling block in order to have uh, preventing open, honest, good, healthy communication and relationships in your life. Now, many people don't want to confess it, but they, they let fear guide the decisions they make in relationships. Let's go to Genesis 3 and look at lying and deception all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. Don't touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasant to the eyes, desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. Now, she also gave some to her husband who was with her but was busy watching an NFL game and not paying attention to what was going on. And he ate it. That was an addition I added to Scripture there, all right? Then the eyes of them both were open, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among all the trees in the garden. But the Lord called to the man, where are you? Now, God was not looking for location. He's, he's omnipotent and omniscient. He, he, he's looking for Adam. I hear people say sometimes, well, Rick, I found the Lord. Well, I didn't know he was lost. You were. He found you. You finally caught on and, and said yes. So God's always the one seeking, seeking us. And he was trying to address Adam, say, what's happened to you, boy? What's happened? Where are you in your mind in our relationship? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So it's kind of interesting, at the onset of humanity, after the fall, one of the first objectives is to cover up, get a fig leaf, and hide from the Father. You know, self-examination should always be at the forefront when we are examining our relationships. I need to check myself out. Psalms 139, verse 23 and 24 in the Message Bible says, Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. 
Cross-examine and test me. Get a real picture of what I'm about. See for yourself whether I've done anything wrong. Then guide me on the road to eternal life. So if we don't look at our emotional state or our motives in a relationship, you're going to enter into the blame game. And once that happens, it's really tough to keep a relationship growing in the right direction. And if we, look, we don't tell our best lies to other people. We tell our best lies to ourselves. That's true. We're skilled at covering our emotional shortcomings. And I think we do it so well that we start to believe our lie. And to us, it becomes a fact. That's why we always have to examine our thoughts, our attitudes, and motives with God's Word. That's the final truth that's in error. So I want to measure my motive and what I'm doing by what God says is right or wrong, not what culture says. Psalms 25, verse 5 says, lead me, teach me, for you are the God who gives me salvation. I have no hope except in you. And then in Hebrews 4, verse 12, for whatever God says to us is full of life-giving power. It is sharper than the sharpest dagger, cutting swift and deep into our innermost thoughts and desires with all their parts, exposing us for what we really are. So God knows my thoughts. He's the creator of the universe. David writes in Psalms 139, For you created my innermost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And I hope today that all of us, self-included here, that we're honest with ourselves and with God's Spirit, that let Him bring some things to light, some issues to the surface that cause problems and pain in your relationships. You know, a couple of examples that are pretty obvious, they're fears that we occur in a relationship, a father uh, and a mother, maybe in the discipline of a child? Do you avoid confrontation, fearing how your child will respond? Or a husband and wife? Are there issues you're not working through with open communication? It could be that one of you fears the other will withdraw or become violently angry or go into isolation in the relationship and withdraw. So what about in the workplace with coworkers and employees? Are there issues that need to be addressed? But see, you're concerned, you're in fear when you're concerned, you're concerned that if you speak negatively after you have an honest conversation, things may fall apart. Or if you speak to somebody in a close friendship and share your true thoughts about a specific issue, you're afraid they won't like you, it may damage our relationship. Can I say this? You won't get many friends in life. You think everybody's your friend? I got land in Florida, I'll sell you. That, a friend loves at all times. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. A friend will never leave you or forsake you. A friend knows the worst about you and loves you anyway. So if you can't tell the worst thing about yourself on anything, even how you're feeling for the moment, even if you're not going to do it, but that's how you feel, a real friend can understand you're just blowing off a little bit of steam, and that's not the real you, and, and it can give some wise counseling. You ought to be able to say something like that in a real friendship, how I'm really feeling about it. <laughs> there. Now, now do you think you got less friends than you thought you had? All those Facebook friends ain't really your friends? Did you know that? Okay. It's just important. So I, I would have to say, what's the most important thing in a relationship? I, I'm not an expert at this, but I'd say just be honest, be real, be authentic. If people meet me, they, I've heard people say to me, like, well, you're just like you are at church. I don't have the pastor me and the real me. 
If it sucks, it sucks now, and it'll suck later. Okay? It's just the way it is. So you got to love me like, like I am. I don't have two me that you, one of them you like and one of them you don't like. This, and I've had people like that, particularly in the ministry, and I thought, man, in one setting you're like this, but privately you're like this. What's the real you? So if I become a friend, I want to know the real you. I want to be really honest. Ephesians 4, verse 15, Amplified. Rather, let our lives lovingly express truth in all things, speaking truly, dealing truly, living truly, enfolded in love. Let us grow up in every way in all things to Him who is the head, even Christ the Messiah, the Anointed One. Great relationships are built on trust, and there's no trust without truth. And if you can't tell the truth, people don't trust you. And if people don't trust you, you can't have a relationship. Can I trust you? So let's go back to Adam and Eve, the very first relationship. If anybody ought to have had a perfect relationship, it would have had to have been Adam and Eve. No kids, alone in paradise, no in-laws, no bills to pay, no work to come home from, no interruptions, no IRS, no clothes. Okay, some of you need some fig leaves. Okay, I... Uh... But when sin entered the world, it brought a new dimension into relationships forever called fear. Fear came into the world for the first time. Fear destroys relationships in a number of ways. First, when I'm afraid of my faults, it makes me very defensive. Second, when I'm afraid of my feelings, it makes me distant. I kind of withdraw. I back off. And third, when I'm afraid of losing my freedom, it makes me controlling. I demand my way. Let's take a look at those three. What happens when I'm afraid of my faults and I become defensive? We hate to admit our faults. We deny our weaknesses. Sometimes we even defend our faults. Anybody beside me ever take a wrong turn or deny that you made a mistake to your wife? It's not a wrong turn, honey. It's a prettier way to go. I, I'm, I'm just doing it for a change. <laughs> you know why Israel was 40 years in the wilderness? because none of the men would ask for directions. <laughs> My God, I think we're lost out here, Abraham. That's right. See, when we fear our faults, we become very defensive. And the more defensive you are, the more fearful you are. Genesis 3, verse 12. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. What was I supposed to do? Then the Lord God said to the woman, what have you done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate it. Now notice, we accuse and we excuse. We accuse the other person in a relationship, but we excuse our part in that action. We blame the other person. It's your fault. When Adam sinned, he took it like a man. He blamed his wife. In fact, in fact, he also blamed God. He said, you know, things were going pretty good down here. We were rocking along really good, didn't have any real big issues, but, you know, you had to interfere. No, you, you had to make her, and you, you brought her into this deal, and that's what caused all this. I was fine until she showed up, and you gave her to me. This is real stuff. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the snake, and since that time, men have always been blaming women, and women have always been calling men snakes. So, so we... We accuse our spouse or our business partner, our friends, and then we try to excuse ourselves. But pretending there's no problem just doesn't work. In 1 John chapter 1, uh, verse 8, it says, 
If we claim we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves, and we're not living in the truth. You know, like I mentioned earlier, pretending is self-deception. Uh, was my friend Chris Estes in AA says, uh, uh, denial is not a river in Egypt. And that's what a lot of people do. I deny I have a problem, see? It's one of the ways we lie to ourselves. What are you pretending that is not a problem in your relationship? Anger, rage, alcohol, substance abuse, worry, perfectionism, patience. What are you pretending that isn't a problem that is a problem? Or what fault do you get defensive about when your mate or friend or your employer brings it up? What do you, what do you find yourself saying? I don't want to talk about it. That's a statement of defense. It means you're afraid. And when I fear my faults, I become hyper-defensive. See, God's got a much better way of dealing with people. Listen to how the Living Bible translates this. 2 Timothy 1, 7. For the Holy Spirit, God's gift, does not want you to be afraid of people, but to be wise and strong and to love them and enjoy being with them. So pretending only perpetuates the problems. It intensifies the hurt. It keeps you from getting help. So what do you do when you have a problem in a relationship? Don't conceal it. Don't ignore it. Don't pretend it's not there. Confess it. Admit it. I got a problem. And by the way, God can't even help you till you acknowledge you got a problem. I know in AA they say, I can't help you until you admit you actually do have a drinking problem. Now, I'm going to tell you something. To admit you have a problem and to seek to get help does not diminish you in God's eyes or my eyes. I think when somebody tells you they're going into rehab or they're going into a clinic for treatment for a problem and they've been very high profile and reputable and you thought, oh my goodness, I can't believe that about them. You should, you should say, I congratulate you. I'm very proud of you because the enemy wants to destroy your potential. God wants you to get well. And I've, I've had to talk to businessmen in this church who do have a, who did have a serious drinking problem. And the hardest thing to do is to get them to admit to themselves, you've got a problem. Okay, you're not going to be less of a man or less of a woman. You're going to get well. You're going to smack the enemy right in the face. And I don't think, I'll, I'll be your biggest supporter. When you say you've got a problem with anything, well, it's embarrassing. Well, not to God. He, he knows you've got the problem, Okay. It's not like God's going to say, well, shoot, Rebecca, I didn't know that. Man, how long's this been going on? God's not, God's, God knows all things from the beginning. All things are open. Nothing is hid from him. He knows every thought and intent of the heart. So I'm not, I remember Charles Simpson, who was a very famous uh, preacher from Mobile, Alabama, during, with Derek Prince and Bob Mumford. They were in the discipleship movement. He came out of the South. He was a heavy smoker. All the kids I went to school with smoked. We raised tobacco back then, and everybody smoked or dipped snuffed out of the South, that, back in my generation. And so he was a smoking preacher, and he thought that was just awful, but he couldn't quit. He said, I'd go to the altar, and I'd confess, I'd repent, but I never could, I never could get victory. And he said, finally, somebody told him, Charles, why don't you just tell God the truth? You've been lying at the altar. So he said, I decided to try something different. He said, so I just told the Lord, I don't want to quit. I love these cigarettes. I'd eat them if I could. 
He said that was the beginning of an open conversation that got him finally to the place he got well. And I see, you got to be, I mean, God knows you love it. So he said, I'm just faking out religious people when I came down there. I wasn't really repenting. I just wanted to put on a good show so folks would think I'm trying. But he said, I really loved it and don't want to quit and didn't want to quit. There are a lot of bad things that have pleasure that none of us want, would like not to quit. But, but we ought to quit, right? I hear people say sometimes, well, there's no fun in sin. And I'm thinking, what planet did you come from? What, what? Have you lost your mind? Scripture says very plainly, there is pleasure in sin or nobody would do it. But for a season. And then the payback is really bad and very tragic. But I, religious people, you know, you have to be really careful. Be really careful who you're getting advice from. Be really, really careful. There are a lot of strange things that go on. It's no wonder Jesus has as few friends as he does because of some of the people that follow him and what they say and what they do, misrepresentation. So it's interesting. I think it's just it's interesting. When I fear my faults, I get real defensive, and it destroys relationships. Second, when I'm afraid of my feelings, I sort of back off. I get distant. Genesis 3, verse 9, and the Lord called to Adam, why are you hiding? And Adam said, I heard you coming, and I didn't want you to see me naked. I didn't want you to know the worst about me, so I hid. See, hiding and fear always go together. We build walls around ourselves so people can't get close to us. We run for cover. Some people cover up with humor. Some people cover up with anger. And so they don't want you to get in close to them. And if you get too close, then they'll explode back to, to move you away from the real issue they don't want to face. Men are particularly good at using distance as a tool for dealing with emotion. Men have a tough time dealing with an emotional woman. When your wife is emotional, men usually detach. You're in the same room, but your eyes glaze over. The lights are on, but nobody's home. Men usually do something very sensitive, like pick up the remote control in the middle of the conversation or check their phone. See, often this is because we don't know how to handle the emotion and this roller coaster we're on. Wasn't trained to do it. And it's not just men. Women can do it too. But men are much more obvious about it than women are. When we're afraid of our feelings, we become distant. And I think there's maybe two main feelings that cause fear. Hurt feelings. Ever been hurt? We hate to admit when somebody hurts us. It's admitting I'm vulnerable. Do you ever play the, is something wrong, dear? at your house? Is anything wrong, honey? No, nothing's wrong. Oh, I can tell something's wrong. No, nothing's wrong. I know something's wrong. You just threw the pan across the kitchen. No, nothing's wrong. Everything's fine. And you're lying through your teeth. Now, why do we do that? It's easier to admit anger than to admit hurt. We're not taught in our society and culture to say, that hurt me. And when we tend to bottle things up and hold them in, and we become angry, and we typically hurt back. Hurt people hurt people. And the reason we have to learn to deal with hurt feelings, and boy, this is the most important thought for the, this morning. It's because you're going to get hurt in relationships for the rest of your life. Uh-huh. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. You're going to be hurt whether you get married, whether you're engaged, whether you're in a friendship, a courtship, or a work relationship. At some point, you will get hurt. It's inevitable. Hurt will not destroy a relationship, but resentment will. 
unresolved hurt turns into resentment and bitterness. And it's like taking a Coke bottle and shaking it up, and then it's going to explode. So hurt turns into resentment, and the Bible makes it very clear that bitterness will destroy not only you, but relationships. So if you don't learn how to deal with bitterness, you're going to have all kinds of problems. So hiding a hurt makes it worse. Hidden hostility destroys more relationships than almost anything else. Then there's angry feelings. Most people don't know how to deal with their anger. Uh, Many Christians think, well, I'm a Christian. I should never get angry. You didn't get that out of the Bible. That's not true. Sometimes you should get angry. Jesus got angry. He didn't sin. The Bible says, be angry and sin not. So it's not a sin to get angry. It's what you do with it. Jesus got angry. He turned over the tables in the temple and threw out all the money changers with a whip. What if I tried that? See, the, the Bible says many times God gets angry, but God doesn't sin. It's how you deal with it that's the issue. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now, that doesn't mean you have to stay awake for 48 hours. What he's saying is you need to deal with it pretty quick. Because if you don't, it's going to go down and become toxic. It's going to stir up a root of bitterness. It's going to do nothing but defile. It means there's a right way to get angry and there's a wrong way to get angry. Sometimes anger is just saying, I care. If I see the elderly being scammed or beaten or robbed, I get mad. When I see little children being abused, I get angry. If I don't get angry, it says I don't care, which means I don't love. But anger is the response of love because you care. Now, studies have shown that the healthiest families are not those who never argue or have a fight because they don't exist. Hello? Maybe in the movies, but not in real life they don't. And studies have shown those who fight all the time are not healthy. Healthy families fight occasionally, but they know how to fight fair. They know how to resolve conflict, how to make up, how to forgive each other, and get on with life. But it's impossible to live with anybody in close proximity and not have some conflict. Unless one of you is a doormat. Had a guy tell me that one time, said, my wife never had a fight in 42 years. I thought, well, you just must have laid down and played dead. That's not possible. See, when I swallow my anger, my stomach will keep score. And if you don't talk out your anger, you're going to take it out on yourself, on your spouse, or a friend. And that would be letting the anger control you, and that's where sin comes in. Hey, don't we read, don't we watch TV every, every night? And we see a shooting uh, where relatives have stabbed each other, or they got it, they were out drinking together. These friends in a neighborhood or relatives, and they, one of them got a gun and shot the other one. The anger got out of control, and they went and did something stupid. Number three, when I'm afraid of losing my freedom, I want to become demanding in my relationships. See, insecurity demands I get my own way. Insecurity demands that my rights have to be met. Insecurity demands I must be in control of the relationship. Now, that's not new. That started with Adam and Eve. And when sin destroyed the perfect relationship of trust and truth, and it creates now the battle of the sexes as we know it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. To the woman, God said, I'm going to make your pain much worse in giving birth. You will give birth to children in pain. All the women said, Amen. 
yet your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. And since that time, the struggle for control between men and women began. So that's not God's ideal. Before Adam fell, that was the ideal. When we're born again, we want to do our best to go back to that ideal. God made men and women to complement each other, not to compete with each other. My wife has skills and certain tendencies that complement my weaknesses. I don't remember names very well. She doesn't forget a name. She knows your body temperature, where your birthmark is, what the name of your baby is, what the temperature of the baby was last week when it was sick. She knows the day you were married, the city, the barometric pressure. I don't know diddly. So I say, hey, bro, how you doing? Because if I knew your name, I'd say it. So it's really hard. So, first, it's true, isn't it? I'm saying she covers my weaknesses there. Now, if your wife's your wife, or maybe in some cases your secretary says, I think she's hitting on you. You better pay attention, dummy, because usually women have a good radar, and they can spot a UFO, an unidentified female object. They can spot them. (laughs) I hope this isn't too deep, okay? So we have differences, but they're to make us better not to compete. There's always going to be differences, no matter how much people try to blur them. Men and women are different. These differences are not wrong, but they're to complement each other. But because of sin, God's will is not being done, and men and women start to compete with each other for control. So your differences are not wrong. They're just different, and they're meant to add fullness and variety to your life. A lot of marriage problems could be summed up in two words, a power struggle. Two insecure people competing for the control of the relationship. Now, you know, by now, after 44 years of marriage to Cindy, I want to make sure on anything important, she's in on it. I want her feedback. I want to lean on her because she's proven herself to be accurate and discerning, and she wants the best for me. I believe that now. I think when I was in my, my 20s, I think I was as dumb as a rock, insensitive, and probably controlling, and didn't think she had anything to add to me. That's when we first got married. But, but, I, but I learned. I've changed. And the good news is, you can change. So I don't want to control, but I won't let her control either. It's mutual. It's mutual agreement depending on each other. See, two are better than one for they have a great reward. And that takes trust. And over the years, you prove my mate is trustworthy. My spouse is trustworthy. My friend in business is trustworthy. That trust has to be earned. That's just not automatic. Today in our society, we're obsessed with the idea of personal rights. We got children's rights, animal rights, smokers' rights, women's rights, employee rights, and it just keeps growing in the list. But if you make your your personal rights the focus, the foundation of your life, you're going to be angry most of your life. You'll end up with a victim mindset. Life is not fair. God never said life was fair. It is not. And remember, this is still earth, not heaven. Things aren't done perfectly here. Things are not always just and fair. Now, however, we want justice. We're to search for fairness. We're to strive for it. We are to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is 
in heaven. But the world is not fair. Deal with that or stay mad the rest of your life. And if you're in a relationship, you're not going to get your way all the time. And if you do, you're going to end up in a divorce or you're going to end up with a very toxic, unhappy marriage. You simply are not going to have all your rights or all of your needs met. There's no hunk of hunk of burning love, honey, that can meet all your need. And there's no hot body out there, babe, that can meet all your need. Or Hollywood would be the happiest place on earth. It's not possible. Only God can meet all of your needs. Well, she completes me. No, that I don't like that either. I didn't show up half completed when I married Cindy. You show up completed, she shows up completed. And that's important. You don't want to marry a half a person. Only God can make me complete. Cindy could do all she can. She's a great mom, a great wife, a great grandmother, a great associate here at the church. But she can't complete me. Only God can fix me. Only God can complete Ricky G, right? Same for you. I know that. But if you're looking for your mate to meet all your needs, you're going to be dismally uh, upset and sad. It's just not going to happen. You're going to be angry, miserable most of your life. So you got to learn to be happy in spite of the fact not all your needs are going to be met. At some point in your journey of life, you come to the realization, well, if, if I can get about a 6 out of 10, I'm doing good. I talk to people all over the world, married just as long as me, and, I, and sometimes these conversations come up over coffee, and I think we all agree, if you can get a 6 out of 10, you're doing really good. That's good. Nobody's getting 10 out of 10. You're there faking you. Could I get an amen from over here somewhere? <laughs> 6 out of 10 is pretty good, pretty good. And God bless you if you get 7 out of 10. You're way ahead of the curve. See? So only God can meet some of these needs. So if you're competing in your marriage over rights, stop it. You're on the same team. Stop fixing the blame. Start fixing the problem. Your mate's not supposed to be your enemy. And if you work together, there's not a problem you cannot resolve. And most of this problems comes from my fear of losing control. Many people avoid, I don't know, commitment to each other because they fear I'm going to lose control. I'll live with you, but I'm not going to marry you because I'm afraid I'll give up control. Now, don't you, you don't want to go into a marriage with an insecure person or a controlling person. Either way, it's going to be bad. You know, courtship is to kind of, this is probably not the way you'd say it in the Bible. Courtship is kind of like kicking the tires and checking the oil, looking, looking it over to see how this thing runs. You want to see the, when you're dating, you're not dating a real person. The real person's home locked up in a cage for four hours for four hours, anybody can be nice. So you want, to go for a, you want to go for a courtship to see them in a bad setting, stressful setting. How do they respond? How do they interact? You got, you, it's, it's more than how they look. You, you, that's when you find out what this real person's like under pressure. Because what you are under pressure is what you are. You know, when you squeeze a toothpaste tube, what's in it's going to come out. And so some of you need, you know, you need more than a body squeeze. You need, a, you need to let people experience life with you to see how they respond. See, when you're operating in fear, most of the time, you don't have good perspective or reality. And you're not resorting to what God's Word says about the situation you're facing. When you get stuck in fear, let me encourage you. Ask a simple question. How would I respond if I didn't have fear operating in this relationship? See, once you determine that answer and then you balance it with God's Word, act on it. 
Will the fear still be there? Maybe, could be. But you'd move forward from a posture of faith. You face it anyway. I spoke a little about it at the beginning, but it's worth repeating. Are you being honest with yourself? So face up to your faults, your fears, and your feelings about a relationship. Stop stuffing them down. Let them come up. Look at them. Examine them. Admit them. Be honest with yourself. Next, be honest with God. Say, Lord, here are my faults, all the crazy areas of my life. Here are the fears that I'm holding about this relationship I'm in. Admit them to God. He, he won't be surprised and he won't be mad. He knows every stupid thing all of us have done. He just wants you to admit it and ask him for help. It's the first step in working on pride and learning how to operate in humility. Pride will never build a relationship, but humility will. God says, humble yourself and I'll exalt you. And you exalt yourself, I will humble you. Now, excuse me, I don't think you have to have a Harvard PhD to know I don't want God humbling me. I think I'll do that for me, myself, Lord. I'll humble myself. And then God says, now, if you'll do that, I'll exalt you. I hope I can get up. Uh, I'll exalt you. <laughs> Cold morning. Tight jeans is tough. Yeah. So. So be honest with yourself. Be honest. Tell God the truth. Third, be honest with your spouse or your friend, those you're close to. James 5, verse 16. Admit your faults to one another. Uh-huh. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The righteous prayer, the earnest prayer of a righteous man has great power and wonderful results. That's pretty good. Revealing your feelings is the beginning of healing, but it takes honesty. It's your choice. It all depends on the level of truth that you're willing to operate in. Intimacy is always found through the tunnel of truth. Always. John chapter 8, verse 32, you know, it says, "For If you will embrace the truth, it will release more freedom into your life. Wow. Truth makes you free. Sometimes it makes you miserable at first but it always makes you free. Truth will liberate you. You never have to be afraid. See, being open and transparent, letting your guard down is hard. It's risky. If I'm open with this person, will they still accept me? What if I hurt their feelings? What if they think less of me? Most people are afraid of confrontation. Can I tell you a little secret, whether you're in business or in church ministry? Good leadership does not have less problems than you. They just have shorter problems because they deal with it quick. Because sentence against an evil work is not swiftly executed, it gets worse. That's in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 written by Solomon, the wisest man on earth. You must deal with it when it comes up. And boy, one thing I do well, I will confront instantly. I will not let bad get worse because bad doesn't get better longer. It gets worse whether that's an employee or whether that's another member or whether that's somebody on staff or whether that's somebody in your employment or in a marriage, you got to deal with it head on. Be as kind as you can, but take it head on. If you'll do that, it won't get real bad. But our fear of confrontation allows things to get bad. So good relationships can cause you to see things from another person's perspective. I've had people speak into my life. I hope you have. Good relationships can bring to the surface stuff that needs to be addressed in your life or another. Proverbs 27, verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so a friend sharpens a friend. Have you ever had a friend make your life a little better? Maybe speak into your life, uh, 
you know, you might want to try this, or you might want to, you might want to do this. Uh, my wife's made several suggestions. It's amazing how much like God my wife sounds. <laughs> hey, for some of you super charismatics, sometimes God speaks to you through people. Listen. Examine it with the Scripture, but listen. Sometimes somebody that you might not like can say the truth. You're always late. You're never on time. I can't depend on you. Now, God just spoke to you through a boss you don't like because that's you. And he just rebuked you. But you won't listen. Remember, stupidity is when I won't listen to somebody who knows. Ignorance means I don't know. But stupidity means I won't listen to someone who does know. There's no cure for that. So God can speak to you through a number of things, not only his word, sometimes he can speak to you through a brother or a sister, somebody can have a word. I'm just saying there are multiple ways God speaks to people, and sometimes we don't listen. Yeah. We, you know, my grandfather used to say, Ricky, if three people call you a jackass, buy a saddle. <laughs> Everybody's not wrong. Every, you've had three jobs, you've had three marriages, and this always comes up. Somebody, and the, you're always in the problem. The problem, every time you run away, there you are, and you haven't fixed you yet. So you've got to fix you first. See, love never brings fear. When you look at architectural concepts of an arch, it's two weaknesses that lean on each other for strength. And that's a good picture of a good marriage, good picture of divine friendships in your life. And men, you need Christian brothers you can lean on and get advice from. Women, you need some Christian sisters you can lean on and get advice from. When each of you come together and lean on each other, it creates a strength greater than either of you have as an individual. It's synergy. See, but that only happens when you're honest and when you let go of the fears that make you defensive, demanding, and distant. Now, how do you get rid of fears? Almost through. 1 John. 1 John 4, verse 18. Love never brings fear, for fear is always related to punishment. But love and perfection drives the fear of punishment far from our heart. Whoever walks constantly afraid of punishment has not reached love's perfection. So the antidote to fear is fully developed love, perfect love, love that's mature. And by the way, I don't have that kind of love, and neither do you. And there's only one way you can get that kind of love and all the other benefits, and that's in our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul puts it when he writes to the Romans. He says in Romans 5, 1, our faith in Jesus transfers God's righteousness to us, and he now declares us flawless in his eyes. I wanted my wife to see that. God declares me flawless in his eyes, not hers, but in his. All right. This means we can now enjoy true and lasting peace with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, has done for us. Our faith guarantees us permanent access into this marvelous kindness that has given us a perfect relationship with God. What incredible joy breaks forth within us as we keep on celebrating our hope of experiencing God's glory. But that's not all, Paul says. Even in times of trouble, we have a joyful confidence knowing that our pressures will develop in us patient endurance. And patient endurance will refine our character, and proven character leads us back to hope. And this hope is not a disappointing fantasy because we can now experience the endless love of God cascading into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Well, before I close this message, I'm going to ask you to do something with me. 
I'm going to ask you to repeat a couple of scriptures out loud. It'll do you good. We're just going to quote a few scriptures that deal with fear and escape this fear that you have. How many of you would say there is some area of fear in your life, in some area. Nobody has to know what, but in some area. My goodness. See, that's three-fourths of the whole church. So I'm going to ask you to repeat these scriptures with me, and this is something you do repeatedly. Every time I face any kind of a problem, I will always throw scripture at it. I will always throw what God says. And so we want to speak God's Word over our fears, and we want to make sure they're on the Bible scriptural ground. So if I could have those scriptures, please, I want to quote them out loud. Here we go. Would you stand with me if you're able? If, you, if you're infirmed, it's okay, but you can say it with me. So come on, I'm going to quote them, and I'm giving to you, then we'll pray. 2 Timothy 1 verse 7 says, stay with me, for God has not given me a spirit of fear, but He's given me power, love, and a sound mind. Then Hebrews 13, 6 says, so we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? Then Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid and terrified because of people. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And then Psalms 56, 3, when I am afraid, and that happens to everybody, I will put my trust in you. Psalms 94, verse 19, when anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. Now that's great because you're just saying what God's saying that He wants to do with you. Would you bow your head with me for another moment? And I want to pray for you. I pray for the revelations of God's Word in this service today. I pray for all the relationships here, Lord, relationships between parents and children, between husbands and wives, and between friends. I pray you will strengthen the families in our church, help us to let go of our fears, and let us be filled with your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your amazing power to change our lives for the better. Help us not to fear commitment, but to realize it is the key to freedom. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.